Welcome to the PK Experience. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show. And in this episode, I sit down with former NFL football player, Eben Britton. Eben played for the Jacksonville Jaguars for, I believe it was six seasons, if I'm not mistaken. But I was interested in speaking to him because in some respects, the NFL really is just a laboratory for pain. I mean, these guys wake up every day, smashing into each other on a year, you know, a daily basis, year in, year out. And, um, you know, the question is, well, how do you how do you deal with that pain? And, and you have a tremendous amount of stress to perform at an elite level for an extended period of time. And of course, you're trying to sustain that for as long as you can. But um, so these guys, uh, unlike other professions, because pain is really a part of their day to day life, um, it's a very interesting you know, again, laboratory for how do you mitigate that pain? How do you deal with that pain? And so uh, I, I came across Evan in the Netflix documentary called Take Your Pills. And Evan was talking about how he used various opioids, which is a either a synthetic or a natural substance that you can take to help relieve pain and actually makes you feel really good. Um, and how many other NFL players did that as well, and uh, as well as some other substances like Adderall and things like that to help him focus. And so anyway, I sat down with him and asked him about that. We also got into his NFL career and uh, and how he got into the NFL and, and the type of pressure that he faced. Um, but I will say this: we didn't get, we didn't dive as deeply into the epidemic that I believe opioids really are. I mean, I'm kind of new to this whole topic as well. I did post something on my Facebook page the other day, and I got a ton of people that responded, um, both publicly and privately. I, I spoke to people who um, had, a, you know, they were addicted to opioids, and now they're off. I've spoken to people who are still addicted to opioids. I've talked to people who've lost loved ones to it. I've talked to medical professionals professionals who use it in their daily practice to help people deal with the pain. Um, I've talked to people who are huge proponents of cannabis or marijuana, of which Eben is one. And uh, so it is a, a much, much bigger deal than I was really frankly, fully aware of. And I'm sort of kind of getting up to speed on that. But anyway, we get into that in this interview. I'm going to be following up on this just because I think it's such an important thing that I'm now discovering uh, has really, you know, it, it's, it's, my understanding that's, you know, at ep epidemic levels as far as the addiction goes, because people, you know, they, they deal with the severe pain and then they're, you know, uh, prescribed opioids. And then the next thing you know, they're, they're addicted to it because it makes you feel so good. So, uh, heroin, for example, is obviously an illegal opioid, but is an opioid nonetheless, where basically it masks the pain to your brain. It, it masks the signal to your brain that you should be feeling pain and, replaces it with, you know, a tremendously good feeling. So I am not a doctor. That is probably the worst um, definition of what an opioid is, but it's a simplified overview. That's kind of all you really need to know if you don't know anything about it. Um, so with that, I'm going to dive into the interview. Take a listen. Let me know what your thoughts are. And if you have any experience in whatever capacity with um, pain management uh, from a medical standpoint or or because you've actually, you know, used opioids and, and have experience with it or know other people that have um, or God forbid you've had somebody that you've lost because they were addicted to it, um, I'd love to hear from you because uh, I do, again, think it's a very important topic. But I'm going to leave it at that and let's go ahead and dive into the interview. Thanks again for listening. This is the PK Experience. Evan Britton, thank you for uh, joining us on the call today. I appreciate you taking some time and talking about this issue. We were just chatting 
pre-recording uh, here, just how complex and tragic and interesting and dynamic this entire conversation is around the use of opioids and and uh, all the different perspectives on it. So thank you uh, again for taking some time today to, to chat about this. It certainly is an important issue. Absolutely, Peter. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I learned about you watching the uh, Netflix documentary called Take Your Pills, where you basically sort of explain your uh, experience with the various drugs that you used in the NFL. But before I kind of get into that, what I, I typically like to find out just a little bit of backstory in yeah. you know, who you are, where you came from, what, uh, you know, what was it like gearing up to, to play in the NFL? I mean, I, I have so many different angles of interest uh, in chatting with you today, but um, give us a little yeah. bit of backstory. For sure. Um, well, I was born in New York City. Um, I lived there until I was 10. Sometime in my childhood, um, I was at my grandparents' house in Connecticut, and I saw on the local news they had some clips from Jets and Giants training camp. And um, I don't know, it sparked this, this passion, this vision of I don't really know what those guys are doing, but I want to do that. I want to be a gladiator. <laughs> this calling to, you know, the warrior way of life. And, and really, I, you know, that's, that's very much, you know, football was just the thing that sort of embodied that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but so my mom would never let me play. Uh, she was always worried I'd get hurt. You know, looking back, thank God she didn't um, until – my freshman year of high school, um, my mom had moved my brother and I out to California, you know, another sort of destiny, a uh, little quirk, you know, God knows if I would have played football had I stayed in Brooklyn uh, through my teenage years, but we moved out to LA. Uh, I went to a high school, John Burroughs High School in Burbank, California, where, you know, they had a really solid football program. Um, and my going into my freshman year of high school, I had my dad help me convince my mom to let me play football. And, um, you know, I went out for it. I, of course I wanted to be a quarterback because that was where all the glory was. And, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, that was, that was the position, you know, that was where I, where I was meant to be. Um, soon thereafter, you know, coaches, because of my size and my athletic ability, um, you know, coaches were like, hey, man, you know, if you switch gears and start working on offensive and defensive line, you could have a really significant future in this game. And begrudgingly, I took their advice and made the move about two weeks into that first year. <laughs> um, there's zero glory on the line. Okay. Yeah, because zero glory. <laughs> um, and, uh, but you know, I really fell in love with it and all of my childhood angst, you know, being, um, you know, a child of divorced parents, a child of alcoholism, all of these different issues, um, always being the biggest kid, always feeling misunderstood. I had a lot of inner rage that I got to bring out on the football field and it was praised. And especially as, as an offensive and defensive lineman, you know, I was 
I was praised for how fiercely and how violently I could dominate another individual. Um, and that really appealed to me. And so that began this process, you know, my singular focus, my vision was to make it to the NFL. Um, everything I did, every action I made, everything I ate, you know, every bit of sleep I got, I was dreaming, eating, breathing football, you know, from extra workouts. My mom had got me uh, a trainer on the side where, you know, after all the football workouts, I'd go a couple of days a week and I'd, I'd have, you know, hour, two hour training sessions that were, you know, everything from strength, weightlifting to sprinting and conditioning drills, footwork drills um, on the field. My mom was also at the time really starting her own path into yoga. Um, I, we have a deep um, discipline of yoga in our family. Uh, I'd say my mom is what you might call a master yogi. She just got her master's from Loyola Marymount, actually. And so uh, along with all of the you know, strength and conditioning work I was doing. She was also taking me at, you know, 12, 13 years old to yoga classes, um, which helped with my flexibility. It helped with, you know, just it, it furthered all of my physical skills even more so. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was my, my constant, you know, everything I did was about playing football being the best I could possibly be, uh, dominating people on the field, dominating my workouts, sprinting, watching film, just really soaking in every aspect of the game. Um, somewhere towards after my sophomore year, I was on varsity. I started getting scholarship offers from just about every school in the country, Division One schools in the country, um, all the Pac-10, uh, Oklahoma, Tennessee, LSU, all those schools. Um, so it was really beginning to materialize um, this dream, this vision I had. And so I went to University of Arizona. Um, I chose there because they had a great creative writing program, one of the best in the country, best in the world creative writing programs. Uh, they were one of the only schools that offered me that had a creative writing program. Um, I chose Arizona for a handful of reasons. You know, I love the desert. There's something that really called to me about the desert of Tucson. It was a great college town. Uh, the creative writing program, as soon as I found that out, it was sort of a done deal. Um, and a new coach, Mike Stoops, he had just gotten there, and Arizona had not been to a bowl game in about 10 years. And I really felt like I could be a part of the building blocks to bring Arizona back to a bowl game, get Arizona back into a winning uh, state of mind. And we did that by the time I left there, um, which I'm very proud of. There, you know, it continued. My vision, my quest continued. It was more hard work in the weight room. Um, more hard work on the football field, watching more film, developing my instincts and my technique as an offensive lineman through film study and, you know, just watching every NFL game I possibly could and studying the offensive linemen, how they moved, how they played, um, 
you know, the mindset of a football player. And I really, you know, going back to that warrior spirit, you know, I really, the discipline of football really cultivated that and continued to, I could bring that aspect of myself into the game and there was a place for it. Um, there I had, again, you know, just like in high school where I had this great group of people around me who um, were very encouraging, very supportive, gave me sort of planted the seed of you could have a long career in this game if you work hard and, you know, you switch positions. At, at Arizona, it was much more the same. I had great people around me who were, you know, very encouraging. They said, Eb, you know, you keep working, you're, you're going to be the guy that's drafted, you know, in the first couple of rounds going to the NFL. You're going to have a great opportunity there. You, you went to Arizona, though, as a lineman, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Offensive lineman. Okay. And stayed on the line? Yep. Yep. I played offensive tackle my whole career there. Right tackle my first um, – three years and then one year at left tackle. Um, And, you know, again, I had a great, great coaches, great strength coach. Um, I was very well prepared. Uh, And then, you know, that time came, I was, I was a redshirt junior. I had a great season. I had a great career at Arizona. I was very high on a lot of mock draft boards um, and I felt I was ready to go. And so I went ahead and entered the NFL draft in 2009. I had one year of eligibility left at Arizona, which I, um, you know, skipped. And um, I went and I got drafted in the second round, 39th overall by the Jacksonville Jaguars. What, what was that like when you found out that you got drafted? Um, you know, it was... It was a huge learning experience for me. Um, you know, I had put so much into it. I had really, you know, had really high expectations for, you know, where I thought I was supposed to go. You know, I believed that I was a first round guy and really wanted to be that first round guy. I ended up going in the second round, 39th overall, which is still incredible. Um, you know, and uh, it was amazing. You know, it was a dream come true. It was realizing a dream. It was, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, my immaturity emotionally got the best of me. I was fucking way too drunk. I was, you know, pretty much out of my mind as far as, you know, how I was talking to the media, you know, I was saying every team that passed up on me is going to regret it. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to fucking be the best offensive tackle to ever play in the NFL. Um, you know, and I had a ton of, uh, regret about how that went down, you know, following that, you know, I had a ton of shame and embarrassment because I wasn't able to handle that moment more gracefully, this moment where, you know, I was really, I built myself up and my whole life around becoming this thing, getting to this level. And I sort of let it slip, you know, I let it go because of my own emotional immaturity. You know, that's saying that to a 21 year old kid at the time who, 
really, I had gotten there because of the chip on my shoulder. And that chip was very present on draft day. Where do you think Uh, that chip came from, by the way? You know, uh, you you talked about, you talked about your, your folks getting divorced. How old were you when that happened? Seven. Okay. I was seven years old. You know, I think that was something I always, I carried throughout my childhood. You know, it was something that, uh, you know, I always wanted to prove to people how tough, how strong, how much, you know, better I was. And that was something that football really fueled and gave me an outlet for, um, you know, it's taken me a long time to release that. And, uh, I think through my NFL career, through that experience, through a handful of very humbling injuries I experienced in my NFL career, uh, you know, that chip really sort of dissipated. And, and really, you know, at the end of the day, it led to my, my release of football, my, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, my football career, realizing, you know, I'd given all I had to the game and there was really nothing more for me to do in it, um, was sort of the, the filing away of that chip. Was your, was your father around growing up? You talked about, uh, having him help convince your mother to let you play football. Was he in California? Where was he during your youth? Yeah, so dad was in, uh, he was in Brooklyn still for the first three years of that move. And then finally, you know, he's an artist, a painter. Um, and uh, he moved out to California, to LA about three years after we did. And he really, you know, he, um, he saw my brother and I through high school and he was always there. He was always, you know, a, a shining light in my childhood. Very, you know, the guy I looked up to, you know, for, you know, my, my entire life. Um, my example of work ethic and what it means to be strong and, you know, uh, how to support people around you through severe amounts of adversity. You know, he was really a guy that, you know, set that example for me. And I greatly appreciated having him around. You know, he was very close to me through that, my whole football process, you know, whether it was playing or getting ready to go to college or even getting, you know, once I got into the NFL. Gotcha. What, can give us a, a glimpse into the difference in the environment from high school to D1 college to the NFL, like just the increased pressure, the different, what made those environments different? Yeah. Um, you know, high school, it's a game. High school, it's a game. It's fun. Um, you know, I felt a lot of pressure. I was always, you know, the team leader, the team captain. I was always, you know, the guys would call me the golden child, you know, the guy that coaches really look to and, respected, appreciated, looked to, to carry the energy of the team, you know, to inspire the team. I was always given the the pregame, pre-practice pep talks. I was always breaking the team. I was always really the, you know, one of the energy fulcrums of every team I'd ever been on. Um, In high school, you know, that I get nervous before games, um, but I didn't necessarily feel a whole lot of pressure even as these scholarship offers began to come in. How big was John Burroughs? 
John Burroughs. We were we were in we were like division two or three in California at that time, which was one of the biggest schools. Okay, one so of the pretty competitive, pretty very yeah, very competitive. I mean, we didn't necessarily have the athletes to compete. You know, we were always our record was always like five and five, four and six, but we were playing, you know, some of the best teams in Southern California. Um, Our league was incredibly tough. We had like Hart and Valencia and Canyon high school. These schools are putting out, you know, perennial, you know, five, six, 10, um, you know, division one athletes every year. You know, meanwhile, I was the only guy going to a division one school out of Berkeley. Gotcha. gotcha. Maybe even the only guy getting a football scholarship. Okay. Uh, so, so going into Arizona then, like what, what kind of, what, what dynamic shifted in terms of your environment and the pressure and the, I've always heard, you know, the D one schools as an athlete, they pretty much own you. Yeah. Or seven. Yeah. You might have liked that just already having already been, you know. Um, football but yeah you know it's uh it it becomes you you know this becomes your entire life you know like you i mean seven i think my true freshman year you know our our weightlifting workout started at 6 a.m um and you know you're going you've got you know, you're basically you, you've got school and you've got football and really it's football and then school. Right. You know, you're every bit of your physical energy is dedicated to practice um, and producing on the football field, meetings, film, and then you're going to your classes, you know, um, and you're you're doing everything you can. You know, the, the life of the student athlete is sort of a, it's, it's an interesting one. And this, this idea of paying college players, I think is becoming so relevant because people are starting to see, you know, the demand on people's, on these young people's time and energy, um, and the amount that they're being exploited, you know, these universities, yeah, I mean, these universities are making millions and millions of, if not billions of dollars on these, sporting events and these players are getting yes there's their tuition is being paid um but it's it's not nearly enough you know for the amount of work and energy that's being put in into it for the players um you know i i frequently didn't have enough money to eat um you know the the amount the stipend was rarely enough to get me through the month um, able to pay, you know, rent and get groceries and, you know, feed myself. And and from there it's, you know, you've got nothing left. Um, but, uh, you know, the stress level begins to amp up. Um, still, you know, I was in the flow. I was a warrior. I was, you know, still embracing the, um, the game. I was very lucky not to get injured. I mean, getting injured takes it to a whole other level of, of stress and anxiety as an athlete, first of all, but as a division one athlete, you know, I was lucky. I didn't have many significant injuries through college. Um, and so I was, I was still, I was very much willing to be a cog in the wheel, you know, cog in the machine. Um, 
and carry the torch and be the guy, be the team leader, you know, do all of that. Um, but they own you, you know, for four years, it's just school and football and, you know, it's continued, you know, football is very, um, everything about it is about breaking down the individual. You know, it's very militaristic in the psychological approach that they have, you know, it's all about the team. Who are you really to have any feelings or opinions about what else happens outside of that? You know, how dare you ever do anything to, um, you know, challenge or uh, deface the, you know, the, the, the fabric of the team, of the organization, whatever that might be. Did that you know? ever come into play for you? Did you? That never came into play for me. Um, because I was always, you know, I was always the good soldier, really. Yeah. I was the golden child. I was, you know, it was a place where I was very highly respected. I was very, I was, everyone's eyes were always on me as far as, you know, how to behave, how to act, how to conduct yourself, how to work. Um, and I took a lot of pride in that. Um, so then, you know, getting to the NFL, that becomes even more so, you know, you go to everything you go to as a rookie, you hear, you know, protect the shield. Um, you're lucky to be here. It's a privilege to be here yet. And, and you believe it, you know, you, you forget about the fact that, you know, you've put 10,000 hours into getting yourself to the NFL. Like every guy who's made it to the NFL has worked his ass off, you know, shed blood, tears, sweat, you know, to get to that level. And when you get there, they go, whoa, 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 man, this is about protecting the shield. What, what does that mean exactly? Protect the shield of the NFL. The, 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 the logo. The, the, yeah, it's it's about, you know, remember that at all times, at all costs, because, you know, the minute you do something to deface the shield or discredit this or this logo, this organization, that's when you start to cut yourself off from this. And you is know. that coming from, from like the Jaguar staff or is that coming from NFL that's coming from NFL, you know, former NFL players coming in to talk. That's coming from NFL office, you know, people who are sometimes players, former players. That's coming from NFL PA. So every team is, is experiencing this? Every team, yeah. Okay. Every single team. You talk to every guy. We, we laugh now. We laugh about protect the shield. It's such, it's such horse shit. You know? It's like, isn't a shield supposed to protect me? Mm. Isn't that the idea behind a shield? Mm. And it's, no, it's, it's about, you know, they have, they take great, um, you know, they take enormous, they go to enormous lengths to protect the integrity, the, the visible integrity, the visible, um, perception. you know, perception of, of their, their organization and of what football is and who football players are, 
you know. So it's, I can uh, certainly uh, understand to an extent. I mean, obviously, sure. there's a vested interest in promoting the reputation of the sport. But um, are you saying that you experienced times where there was uh, hypocritical, you know? Uh, well, we're experiencing that now. Let's talk. I mean, they won't address the issues of concussions and CTE. They, you know, continue to refuse to uh, search, seek out any solutions. They don't want to talk about the opiate epidemic and that opiate NFL players in particular are four times as likely to abuse opiates as the average American. Yeah. They don't want to take into account the anytime a guy is, you know, um, uh, pulled over for a DUI or, um, you know, accused of domestic violence or whatever it might be. You know, there is no there is just a complete disconnection of that person. That dude is ostracized. He is fucking out of here. He is not a part of this place. And the fact is that all of these sub-concussive and concussive hits that we're taking every fucking day to our prefrontal cortex, the hub of executive decision-making, of mature emotional thinking, of you know non-fear-based action decision-making, is right here. It's taking the brunt of the damage every single day. And that's, that's because we play football. And yet it turns its back on guys constantly. It turns its back on guys when they leave the league. You know, there is no, there's no, you know, uh, parting ceremony. There's no, and, and which is fine. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a handholding process, but there needs to be some sort of, you know, back end uh, process for players to begin the transition out of their football lives. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's 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 really um, sad to see some of these guys. I mean, I think I remember. Yeah, I hope I'm not misplacing this, but I think it was Emmett Smith, um, and it's just knees breaking down, and just there's there was no support, and there was no, you know, yeah. they really just. Once you're outside of that bubble, it's like it seems like from the outside perspective that it's totally forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, Emmett is a fucking Hall of Famer, you know, and think about the thousands of guys, you know, like myself, who are much less known players who are leaving the league and have nothing. You know, you you have no there's no you know, you're not remembered you're not thought of you know in that in those circles and so it really is on you the player to you know find those tools to you know refine find some community that you can be brought into to sort of begin that healing process hold on one sec i'm just gonna let my dog out yeah no worries yeah yeah, man. Yeah. Um, so you're in the NFL uh, from the from the Netflix documentary. It said that your first year, and your wife was was saying, you know, she was talking about how that well, I wish we could go back to that rookie year. Everything was perfect. You know, like you were healthy, yeah. you were kicking ass. Um, yeah. 
but but walk us through what happened when you got injured. Yeah. Well, I think I should preface by saying that, um, you know, in college and high school, high school first, there no pills. You know, if I was sore, if I was really sore, maybe I would take an Advil here and there. Even in college, same thing. Um, occasionally. Uh, but when I got to the NFL, you know, I remember before our first preseason game, one of the veterans came up to me and we're getting ready. Still, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking any pills. My body hurts, but I'm pretty used to it. And every guy's body hurts. And uh, it's before my first preseason game. We're playing the Miami Dolphins. And one of the vets comes up to me. He's like, you get your Toradol shot yet? And I was like, Toradol? What's that? He's like, T-Train. You get your T-Train? And I'm like, no, dude. I haven't gotten my T-Train yet. He's like, come on. Come with me. So we walk walk through the locker room. We walk into the training room area. And one of our team docs, he's got, you know, like a little table. And there's a line of some of the veterans and they've got their fucking football pants pulled down around one of their butt cheeks. And the doc is hitting them with this injection of the Toradol shot. That's, you know, and um, that was the beginning of it. You know, that was the beginning of this idea of, oh, we need to take things to be at our best here because every single guy is taking pills or taking something to get himself to be at a hundred percent when he steps on the field. So as sore as I am, you know, I better, when I get on that field, I better be at a hundred percent because I know that fire breathing defensive end is going to have been taking something and feel at a hundred percent. So I guess I need to take something. Were you feeling like you were a step behind or anything like that while you were, while you were not taking anything? Um, I don't know because there there wasn't many instances of that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you know the I, the thought of that as a player, as an offensive tackle, you know, my job is to protect the quarterback and open up holes for the running back. You know, and I'm playing against a defensive end who is a much better athlete than me, who's faster, um, who's probably quicker off the ball. So I need to have every, you know every single tiny advantage I could possibly have for myself. I need to, to take that measure. Um, was there pressure if you didn't take it? Um, maybe it? internal pressure, you know, I'd say 98 to 99% of the guys in an NFL locker room are taking some sort of prescription anti-inflammatory okay. every day. Wow. Um, just to deal with the nicks and the soreness. That's not even when you have a severe injury, you know. Um, so I got my, you know, year-long prescription of Cataflam, which is a pharmaceutical-grade anti-inflammatory, uh, and then Indocin uh, when I needed to take it up a notch because that's a little more potent, a little stronger. Um, it'll also give you the, it'll also make you shit blood if you don't eat with it. Uh, yeah, which is great. And, uh, you know, and then, so I was taking 
you know, these prescription anti-inflammatories just to get through the day of the, the neck soreness, um, you know, the constant shoulder and joint pain and, you know, your back hurts and your knees hurt and everything hurts. So I'll just, I got to take my anti-inflammatory and that, you know, it made you feel better. The problem is it's destroying your digestive system and your liver and kidneys and, you know, and then, you know, during the season, you if you're a younger guy, as a younger guy who's not yet, you know, hasn't taken a serious injury, you know, you start getting, you get in a little envelope of opiates right before the game that is for after the game. And, you know, every guy gets that. Every guy gets his Vicodin when he gets on the plane coming home from the away game. And that was pretty much expected. That was very regular practice. So for those that are not aware of what an opiate is, um, can you explain just the, the the overall, you know, what an opiate is and the opioids? Yeah, so opiates are, you know, painkillers uh, like Vicodin, Percocet, um, Norco, Oxycontin. Uh, these are all opiates. And basically opiates go into your... Um, Cerebral cortex is where your opiate receptors are, and it goes there and it blocks the pain from coming into your brain. The pain messages get blocked from going into your brain. For me, they never really did anything to ease my pain. They really made my body feel more uncomfortable. They put me on like an emotional tr hair trigger, so my rage and anger was very much on the surface. I had this uncontrollable irritability, um, you know, and then when I started dealing with more severe injuries, my first really severe injury was my shoulder injury. Uh, I dislocated my shoulder twice against the chiefs and I was done for the year. Um, had to have shoulder surgery. I got put on opiates and, uh, you know, I was waking up at, two, three o'clock in the morning with withdrawal symptoms after just taking these things for three days, pres uh, prescribed dosages. Wow. Um, that's a knifing sensation in the gut, cold sweats, chills, just severe discomfort throughout the body. And, you know, I'd be up from two o'clock in the morning on, you know, with this shoulder injury, my arm in a sling, just sitting up in this recliner in my living room in Florida. And, you know, totally alone <laughs> and uh really it was um you know it was an awful feeling these pills they were they were horrendous i mean they the side effects i experienced with those were you know what i just said the the withdrawal symptoms to severe irritability and anger and rage that would lead to, you know, lashing out at the people who were t around me taking care of me because I couldn't time, I couldn't put my shoes on. I couldn't get dressed myself. You know, I needed help to do just about everything. But it uh, really didn't do anything to help mitigate the pain? You know, not for me. I was always like, you know, I still feel the pain. I don't really care about it because I'm turned into a zombie. But, you know, as far as the pain goes, it wasn't, you know, it didn't do much for me as far as, you know, taking the pain away. And did you bring it uh, up with your medical staff? And what was the response? No, because I was just in, in this, you know, guise of, well, 
um, you know, these are what the doctors give you. This is what the doctor gives you after surgery. This is what they call painkillers. I guess this is how they're supposed to make you feel. Um, And that's it. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, they they made me feel horrible, Um, which, uh, you know, was my experience with them. Um, And so, where were we? How long were you on them? Um, on and off for, you know, I suffered this back injury, um, going into my second year and I started really taking opiates, you know, sporadically through there to deal with the sciatica I had, which is, you know, uh, because I, I had pinched, I had herniated the disc in my back L5 S1 and it was pinching my nerve to such an extent that it sends shooting shock waves of pain through your butt cheek, down the outside of your hamstring, through your calf, all the way into my foot, leading to numbness in my foot. So leading up to my shoulder injury in my second year, I was also at the same time dealing with this herniated disc in my back. And so I was taking opiates like sporadically throughout the week whenever I could get my hands on them, which was, you know, towards the end of the week on Saturdays, they'd come around, hand out envelopes of the opiates for the game. And I would sort of go around to teammates who weren't using them and, and collect them um, to get through Saturday night and Saturday walkthroughs to get before the game. And then I would take opiates before the game along with my Adderall. And then I would, you know, take opiates after the game. So, you know, they, they were on and off for my first three seasons, three and a half seasons, um, you know, until basically I had one too many experiences where I was like, this shit, you know, the, the emotional way these make me feel. You know, my interactions with family members got to the point where I was like, this is not me. You know, this is not who I am. This, this like explosive anger I have, like, I don't even know where this is coming from. I'd be watching myself screaming at somebody, my brother, for instance, over the smallest thing. And I'd be going, wow, you know, this is these pills. This is what's happening, you know. And is your family picking up on that too? Are they saying this is what's happening? Is this... Uh, I think they were all just sort of, you know, in shock with the whole thing, you know. Um, And at the same time, you know, you're the big star athlete, you know, you're the you're in the limelight. And so there was very much of, you know, people were constantly getting out of the way. People were constantly, you know, giving me my space. Um, and I don't think anyone was really aware. I think that sure, if people, you know, were conscious enough of what I was going through in my own process, you know, with these injuries and the pills, they might've said something like that or thought something like that. But, you know, I don't think anybody really knew the extent of what I was going through. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, and really we could get to this later, but cannabis really became my primary source of pain management through my football career. When, you know, I started to realize like, oh, I can consume, I can smoke a little weed and man, it helps me sleep. It, it really helps ease the pain in my body. It eases the, the psychological stress and anxiety I'm dealing with. Um, that same year, dealing with the back injury leading up to my first shoulder injury my, my where I needed surgery, that's when I started taking Adderall. And what Take Your Pills really highlighted for me, it brought me back to was, you know, the opiates made me feel so terrible that I really, it was like, I just need to get away from these things, you know, and cannabis really helped get me out of that. But Adderall, combining the fact that I believe it helped get me out of the pain, psychologically, it took me out of this, this pain that I was in. It helped sort of energize my body, but it also, you know, from all the sub-concussive hits, all the damage I was doing, playing offensive line, playing football, you know, my cognitive function had gotten to such a, a steep decline, you know, I was constantly in a fog, I was constantly depressed, I was very, I was feeling very low emotionally, psychologically, um, you know, I was in a very dark place and Adderall really helped lift me out of that for a time. You know, it helped me focus in meetings. It helped me sort of re-engage with my family, with my friends. And then it helped me with deal with the pain. It took me out of the pain. So Adderall really became that drug of choice for me through football. You know, and I and take your pills really reminded me of that experience that I had had, you know, because the opiates were so, you know, I knew intuitively I was like, this shit is not working. You know, the negative side effects of these pills. It's just it's not working for me. It doesn't do anything for me. I need to be I need to stay away from this. And so Adderall really assumed this role of the thing that I leaned so heavily on to get me through the day-to-day -day process of being in the NFL. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it was I, at one point in the documentary, Take Your Pills, uh, your, your wife was like, wow, this is great. He comes home, he takes out the trash, he gets things done. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, it, it almost in the beginning part of the documentary, it, it, it makes a very compelling case to take Adderall. It sounds like, wow, you can get focused, you can get stuff done. Uh, yeah. What was some of the negative side effects to you taking Adderall? So, um, you know, it, it became, um, I, you know, I don't, I guess, you know, I was, I was addicted to it in many ways. I was addicted to that feeling of getting things done, of production, um, of being able to engage. So, you know, I take my, I take my 70 milligram Vivance, which is a time release form of Adderall in the morning. And then it would turn into, you know, by two o'clock, I started realizing two o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm taking the Vivance around say six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, right before our first meeting of the day by two 
I was like, shit, man, I'm fucking, I like don't know what to do with myself. I'm getting so depressed. You know, I'm finding myself just falling off this cliff. Um, and so I take more, I take another Adderall and I take like a 20 milligram, you know, regular release. Let me just close this door. So then I take more and then I find myself, you know, towards the later of the later end of the day, you know, by the time, you know, and that, that second Adderall didn't really help get me out of that emotional cliff drop. It really just sort of spiked my, you know, the racing of thoughts. It turned it into, you know, very anxiety driven experience. Um, it didn't really help energize me anymore. And so, but I still, I got into this rut, you know, of two, around two, three o'clock in the afternoon, man, I'd fall off a cliff and it would be a black spiral into, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know where to go. Um, I'm in a, in a deep depression where nothing, nothing, is going to make me feel better. And, you know, nothing is going to make me happy, even give me a sense of well-being, you know, and that was really, it was, it was incredibly destructive. And that then, you know, the racing mind, inability to sleep, you know, I would get severely dehydrated because this stuff really dehydrates your body. Um, you know, I would, um, have to start, you know, drinking alcohol to bring myself down. I would, you know, start consuming enormous amounts of cannabis to help try to, you know, reverse the effects to counter the effects of the, of the Adderall. And, you know, it just became this cycle and that's, that kept on for the next, you know, from my second year, really, through two, three, four, five, and six, you know, through the end of my career, it just became this cycle. And I was, I was at this point though, you know, on days, if I didn't have my Adderall, I, it was almost like, what am I doing here? I I'm incapable of functioning without it. Wow. Yeah. I would, I would consider that to be a negative side effect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how pervasive, would you say Adderall and, um, and or opiates in the NFL? Is it an epidemic? Is it, is it a, is it a, is that, is it at crisis level? Um, you know, then guys are very discreet, you know, because we're under this psychological sort of, we're in this like psychological this echo chamber of football, you know, where it's like, everything's good. I'm a football player. I'm, you know, I'm a well-to-do stand-up man. You know, I am a clean, you know, hardworking individual. I don't use drugs. I don't, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know? And so guys are very discreet about it. I would say that, you know, there's a, like I said, 98 to 99% of guys in, the, in an NFL locker room are taking some prescription anti-inflammatory drug. 
I would say from there, there's probably a 50% and up ratio of guys that are taking opiates regularly. And I would say on the Adderall or amphetamine front that that is going to, that is a growing epidemic um, in the NFL. And I believe it's because of the, the cognitive decline of football players through years and years of constant hits to the head playing this game. There's a, a, a high demand for productivity for, you know, being at your best. There's a great amount of stress and anxiety around that for every guy. You know, when I was in the league, at that time, Adderall was kind of new. It was sort of this new thing. And it was also, you know, it's a banned substance by the league. But you can go through this process of gaining a TUE or a therapeutic use exemption through a doctor to be able to take Adderall or another uh, uh, prescription stimulant um, like Ritalin. Uh, and you could take that without failing a drug test. So that's what I did. And... I think that's happening more and more. And the more years I was in, it seemed like more and more guys were taking Adderall. You know, the the what I think is really an epidemic among football players in the NFL, really among the NFL, because this this I think crosses the boundaries to the coaches, the front office people, but the practice of self medication, whatever that might be. Whether it's pills, alcohol, some sort of, you know, pornography or sexual, weird sexual practice, something like that, you know, domestic violence, abuse, you know, emotional abuse, you know, I think the practice of self-medication is nearly 100% through the league. That's really surprising given how much, uh, you know how much the, the reputation holding up the shield matters, you know, to the NFL, how much you guys being a asset to a team, you know, a, a product, a, a part of the, you know, you being an individual product of the bigger product of the team. I'm surprised that there's just not more regulation and oversight from a medical perspective to make sure that you guys are getting a, what you need and that be not more than what you need so that there's, you know, or they just, turning a blind eye because they want you to do whatever the hell you need to do to show up on game day. It's very layered. It's heavily layered. You know, I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, you know, there's, there's kind of like a joke around. Yeah. Football players are fucking crazy. You know, they're, they're like, you know, warriors, but you know, they're, you know, they're the guys that are the crazy partiers and, you know, they're, you know, always surrounded by beautiful women and all of that shit, you know, there's kind of like, it's kind of laughed about, you know, and I think there's a turning the blind eye. There's a, Hey, you guys do what you got to do. Right. You know, there's a, um, you know, as long as you're not fucking killing anybody or hurting anybody or doing any of that, because then, you know, you get sort of ex exiled and you're not really given an opportunity. I mean, obviously consequences need to happen. 
You know, I'm not saying that like, hey, you know, a guy beats his wife. Let's just fucking shower him with love and praise. No, fuck no. But there's a pro- there's a process of, you know, reintegration of, you know, uh, therapy of, you know, all these different emotional um you know cleansing emotional help that these guys are in need of that's just not being provided that's what's really hitting me right now is is of course there's never uh there's a saying there's never an excuse for abuse and but at the same time you're talking about an incredibly high pressure situation tons of pain medication you're not in your right mind you're being stimulated you're emotionally being stimulated the rage is not you know, like you said you're in a fog so again not that you would ever justify uh, abusive behavior but at the same time where's the support where's the right. regulation where's the guardrails where's the support right. um yeah. i mean that to me sounds like the and you're dealing with kids in this. right yeah. these are young you're dealing 20 with kids even though these guys, yeah, these guys, you know, so they get to into their 30s, you know, some of the oldest guys on a football team, maybe you'll have a 37, 38 year old on your team. That's just about the oldest a football player is. And that's rare. Right. You know, that might be a, a long time veteran quarterback or a kicker, you know, that's like very rare. But you know, the truth is you're emotionally stunted to back to when you were like 16, 17. You know, this is a bunch of 17, emotionally 17-year-old men put together in one place. You know, you don't have any tools, any emotional tools whatsoever, you know, to aid you in this, in the shit that you deal with uh, as a pro football player. What you were talking about earlier, just your, your lack of experience in dealing with the media. Like I would just think, especially from an NFL perspective and protecting the shield, that there would be some type of, you know, preliminary program to put rookies through to say, Hey, look, here's how you deal with the media. I mean, do you get any of that or? They do. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but you got to remember, like, you're a you're a 21 year old kid. Yeah, you're not. You don't like. You just realized your dream. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, I got it. I get it. I know how to. What would it take to get through that? I'm not sure. You know, that's something I'm really. I I am sort of putting the pieces together for myself right now. Of how do you approach? that guy you know how do i approach my 21 year old self and you know i think that a lot of what i heard i did um i did take you know i wasn't necessarily ready to incorporate it into my life at the time but you know a lot of things that i heard a lot of the things that i you know uh the the teaching the the things that people told me, you know, this isn't going to last forever. Um, you know, all of that, you know, you take slices of it, you take particles of those, those comments that people make to you throughout that time. But like, how, how do you really make an impact on a guy? And for me, you know, one way might be that, you know, you're so, it's so, it's so ego driven. You know football and your football experience especially as a as a pro football player as a as one of the athletes you know it's so ego driven so it's very difficult to sort of you know make an impression but at the same time 
you know, you can, um, I went to the NFLPA office last year or two last year, a year and a half ago. Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever been there. And frankly, you know, as a player, my feeling about the NFLPA was, okay, I got to pay my PA dues because that's what all the veterans tell me I got to do because they protect us. They negotiate on our behalf. Um, That's our union. That's supposed to be our safe house. That's these are the people that are supposed to be there to protect us against the powers that be the NFL. Um, yet there was always a disconnect, you know, there was always a severe disconnect of, I don't really feel safe with these people. You know, I don't feel like these people necessarily have my back. And that was definitely true when it came to my, um, when I failed the drug test for Ritalin my last year in Chicago, and I was handed a four game suspension for Ritalin, which is, Literally just the cousin of the medication I was taking to treat the exact same psychological disorder I was diagnosed with. Uh, So for for those that don't know, you, you, what, didn't have access to the Adderall for a day or whatever? Yeah, so I had, um, we had our bye week, and my bye week, my last year in Chicago, was uh, a nightmare, essentially. I went, we, my wife and daughter and I, we flew back to L.A., because my high school was retiring my jersey. We were doing a whole ceremony. Um, It was really a great thing. (laughs) And uh, sometime in there, um, during the ceremony, actually, I started having this pain in the lower right part of my abdomen. And I'm just like, oh, my God, you know, and it's it kept sort of building. I was by the time the, the football game started, because the ceremony was on the day of the game, I was puking. I was, you know, just in I was in sweats. I was just in a horrible place. I had to leave. We went back to the place we were staying at. I was basically bedridden for the rest of the trip. It was my birthday weekend. Had my entire family in in at the house over to our Airbnb and I can't get out of bed because I'm so ill. And on Sunday, the day we're supposed to leave to come back to Chicago, this pain had not subsided. It even maybe gotten worse. And I was like, I need to go to the emergency room, go to the emergency room. I have an appendicitis. My appendix had ruptured. Um, and I needed to have an emergency appendectomy. I ended up being in LA for another week, um, was in terrible shape, uh, came back finally after a week of that, uh, flew back to Chicago. I'd lost about 30, 40 pounds. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was a disaster and, um, I was out of Adderall. I was out of my Adderall. And of course, as you know, as we talked about going to, to a day of work without Adderall, I was, I was incapable of that. I couldn't imagine it. So on a day I didn't have Adderall, I was out of my prescription. I hadn't had time to go refill it. I was in the locker room and I knew one of my teammates was taking some sort of medication similar. I didn't know if it was Adderall or what. I went and talked to him. He's like, oh, well, I've got Ritalin. I said, okay, that treats the same thing. 
I was like, you know, even if I do get drug tested, uh, I feel like I'll have a great case. You know, this is this this is a similar medication used to treat the same thing. So I took the Ritalin. Of course, later that day, I get drug tested. Um, months later, after the season is over, I get a letter from the the drug program saying that I had failed a test for Ritalin and that I was going to be given a four-game suspension. Um, I call up the NFLPA, uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, this will be fine. We'll, we'll definitely be able to appeal this. They call me back the next day and say, no, they're not going to let us appeal it. I was like, well, I mean, that was totally useless. You know, I don't understand. You just you just fucking roll over. What's the point of having uh, a union, a group of people who are supposed to have your back if they can't even go in and fight for you in a case like this? So that was that story. I ended up getting, you know. I had to take the four-game suspension, but I was okay because I was ready to be done anyway. I had reached my limit with football. You know, my body had really uh, had it. My mind had had it. Uh, I was ready to be done. I had seen the light of the t at the end of the tunnel that year, you know, with my football career. And so I was able to walk away. Um, and uh, so... That, you know, that is just to me a a prime example of how the NFLPA continues to fail its players. So anyway, I go with my wife to the NFLPA office because they have this branch of it called the Players Trust, which is where they've taken all this money that they've gathered and they put it towards um, former player programs, whether you want to go back to school or you want to maybe go and do like a business entrepreneurial workshop. Um, you can go and do that. Uh, you could go to broadcast boot camp. Um, they, you know, can, they do a little bit to sort of help give you, they give you some options in life after football. Um, you know, there isn't much, of this, you know, emotional support that we're talking about here still, which is one of the issues I, I have with it. Um, For sure. I actually, in, in just in talking to the, you know, my audience and some of the people that responded to my questions on social media, the, the overwhelming pattern that I saw was that the people that had uh, either been hooked on opioids themselves or know of somebody that had or were looking at it from a medical perspective, all of them talked about the psychological component being, you know, obviously the the, the void where an addiction then starts to fill. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that, that to not get any support on that level, I think, would be very or is very tragic. Yeah. Yeah. There. Absolutely. Um, you know, in the whole time we're at this office in D.C., Washington, D.C., they flew us out. They put us up in a nice hotel room. Um, you walk into the building and you're being you're taken on this tour around. And there's a very defensive atmosphere of the people working there. Everything is. Hey man, we always say this is your building. We just work here, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't feel that way at all. You know, I feel the like people that are working there are saying this to you. Yes, 
They're saying hey, you're they're, even on the other side of the the curtain, sort of saying like, yes, oh, interesting. Yes, there. It's funded by the NFL. It's funded by the league. You know, they. Um, you know, frankly, in the last collective bargaining agreement, the NFLPA, our, our union got steamrolled in negotiations. I mean, the one thing that we didn't give up, thank God, which God knows when this will come, but the two extra games that the NFL wants players to play to go to 18 game schedule, um, which would just be absurd. It's already too many games. Um, but so we're taking this tour and everything is very defensive and, and I've gone through this. I'm still currently, I'm going through an appeal of my line of duty benefit, which is a post career disability benefit that I can get from the league, which I was denied my first time, even though I had a severe back injury that you could say was, you know, physically altering to the point that it was career ending. Um, and so I'm appealing that. And the information I got through that with the guy who's the liaison for that program to help you from the NFLPA, I got incorrect information. I got information that was not fully accurate to the point that it it inhibited my process of getting this thing done. And it's like you have to ask yourself why. And then sitting in front of this guy months later – He's defensive about it. But you know, wife the is, guy from the Players Trust? Yeah, the guy who was the liaison for this this line of duty pro- program. Okay. Um, he was he was very defensive. And my wife, you know, being the pit bull that she is, is there asking everybody all the questions that they don't want to answer. You know, no none of these people were interested in having the wives <laughs> You know, just asking all the shit that the players don't, you know, because as players were kind of like, oh, well, that's the way it is. We just have to function within those boundaries. But meanwhile, the wives are like, no, bullshit. What's this? How do you do this? How do you access this? Why wasn't my husband given given this information? X, Y and Z. Um, so my, having my wife there and there were some other wives there it made them incredibly uncomfortable. But. I say all this to get to the fact that we get up to this marketing floor, the marketing department of the NFLPA, and they're taking us around. They're like, isn't this great? You know, this is where we negotiate the Madden deal, you know, for the video game. And, you know, all the merchandise that you, that's, that you guys are, are on. And we go into this room and there's just like jerseys and bobbleheads and sweaters and video games and gummy bears and fucking, you know, soda cans. And I'm just like looking at it all. And it occurs to me, it's like, man, every rookie who comes into the NFL needs to come here and experience this and realize that this is no longer a game. This is no longer the family atmosphere. This is no longer the tribe that we've grown up a part of from high school and even into college. Like now people are making so much money off of you, probably more money off of you than you're making off of you still in the NFL. And you need to understand that, you know, this is a business, you know, this is not about, you know, you don't have anyone to really rely on. There's nobody in your corner 
um, other than you. I mean, yes, your family, your friends, you've got those people, the people that have been around you, um, and you need to rely on those people. But, you know, as a player, you need to start taking control over your life from your financial uh, ability, your financial capability, your understanding of how money works and how your money works and what you want to do with it and how to pay bills, how to do all the little things that, you know, we've never had to do and really taking a look at it as this is no longer, I'm just playing football. This is now a business. And I think that maybe that could be an entry point for starting this process of getting rookies, young players to look at their profession in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, We were talking earlier about, you know, what would it take to get through to the the 21 year old rookie, 22 year old rookie? Yeah. Um, I mean, just as you were talking, I'm like, I'm getting kind of pissed off just hearing it. And obviously I'm just, I'm hearing your perspective. I'm sure there's other perspectives that I haven't heard just yet. But like the thing that comes to my mind is like, what about just giving a shit? What about just actually having a consequence? What if there was character within either the team organizations or with in the NFL itself to where there was negative consequences for getting out, you know, going over the boundaries um, instead of constantly, at least from my perception, my obviously very limited perception is, is that there's, you know, the red carpets being rolled out. It's you're a product, you know, we'll, we'll let you get away with whatever, you know, you, you kind of have some rough edges here. We're going to help you overlook that or sweep this under the rug. Like, what if you actually give a shit, gave a shit about somebody as a human being and then let them work within that boundary? I personally, I think that there's profit behind that. I think that's a valuable asset that you could put out that our culture, that society would actually really benefit from as opposed to like trying to just hold up the facade. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is more, this is just my opinion, but I think to me it's more than just, Hey, this is a good idea. This is the right thing. I genuinely think it's profitable. I think it's probably more profitable to do the right thing in a real way, in an authentic way. Some guy screws up and, and, and have the coach come out and say, Look, you know we have team rules, and yeah, he's yeah. our star guy, but yeah. we gotta—he's a—he's fa- part of our family, and we're not going to undercut him by selling him out that way, you know? Right? Yeah, absolutely. And actually taking steps to, you know, help rehabilitate the guy through those consequences. Yes, especially on the psychological level. I can't even begin to imagine. You know, uh, the <laughs> the cynic is going to go, oh, boo hoo. You know, yeah, multi million dollar you know exactly. star athlete yeah. has problems, nope. right? And that is part of the issue. You know, part of the issue is how pro athletes are portrayed in the media. You know, and how you know it it becomes. You know, it's like you're getting paid millions of dollars. What the fuck do you have to complain about? You know, and that that's a huge argument for just about what 75 percent of America yeah. is going. What the fuck is this? Probably more 95 percent because, you know, you really enter into that that upper two percent when you enter the NFL as far as your income goes. And so it's like, you know, that's a huge thing. That's a huge issue with this whole thing is getting the outside the general audience to appreciate this, you know, psychological 
um, you know, prison that that pro football players are in. Well, I think it really is a reflection of where we are as a, as a society and what we're willing to tolerate, what we're willing to overlook to get what we want. You know, we all want to go home on a Sunday afternoon and, and watch guys beat up on each other, if, you know, and have our team win and all that. But, um, you know, these are real human beings. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, that to me, it just comes back to that whole idea of like, we got to give a shit again about um, the, the character and, and yeah. the values. Like what's, what's actually, what is the real product that's being put out there? Is it entertainment? Sure. Of course it's entertaining, yeah. but there's a real opportunity here to provide some real clarity in, in, in human achievement and human, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but just, um, you know, demonstration and manifestation of, of, some principles that I think could serve our society. I mean, I know I'm getting off. On Absolutely. Track, no, but... I think you're right on. I think you're, you're, you know, you're pinging on something that is, you know, we're at sort of a crux, a spiritual crux as a, as a society in our development. Uh, um, yeah. That to me is kind of what the, the bigger picture I was trying to tap into. And I think your story is just a microcosm of sort of what's happening across yeah. the board in obviously many different ways, but yeah, you're right. I think there is sort of a, a spiritual void in, in a lot of our culture right now. I think, you know, I've, I've talked to many people that feel that same way too, but yeah. Um, a yeah. lot of that does come to that psychological component, you know, yeah. So yeah. people helping people through that. I had another call with, uh, with an author who talked about stress and, you know, PTS had another, uh, uh, special forces guy dealing with PTS. Yeah. I mean, and there's just not that psychological component, yeah. You know, in any type of trauma. Yes. You know? So, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if it's an American thing or what, but, you know, my buddy Nate, because um, we, I have a podcast, Mindful Warrior podcast, and uh, my co-host is this guy, Nathan, Nate Jackson, who played six years in the NFL as well. He's written a couple books, but, you know, we really call it the football industrial complex. <laughs> You know, it's this inability to share emotions, to share feelings, because it's it's stigmatized. So, like, you're weak. You know, um, we can't be anything but fine and good, and you know, at our best. And you know, that doesn't get us anywhere. No, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't get us to the next level if we're just constantly telling everybody, you know, we're good. I'm good. You know, it's all good. Yeah. You know, because it's not. It's really not. And that's well, not. Yeah, you're tapping into something else that's really core for me as well, and and, and which is really the masculine experience. Uh, it's part yeah. of the reason why I was yeah. asking you about your father and what kind of role he played in your in your upbringing. Um, yeah. But you're right. What I mean, what the result is is what you're saying earlier is it leads to a ton of isolation, a ton yeah. of uh, inauthentic. Uh, uh, what's the word? Um, imposter syndrome, where people are putting yeah. on a front, but. In the in the you know late hours of the evening, it's isolation. They're alone. Yeah. This is specifically with men, is at least what I have come across often. No doubt, yeah. no fucking doubt, yeah. man. We got to get it, back to that uh, sort of um, tribe, you know. Yes. Where the council fire, you know, where yes. that's one of the things I'm, I'm a proponent of is just getting back together to local band of brothers where you guys like, what's going on in your world? What are, what are you dealing with? Like, and let's just be raw. Let's put the shit out there. And if, if you have to, you know, fall apart, fall apart, we're going to pick you back up, kick you in the mm -hmm. ass where you need it. You know, it's so, it's been a huge part of my healing process, man. You do, know, do you, getting, do you have something like that then? And 
Yeah, I actually, I have a men's group meeting that I go to uh, twice a week. And, uh, you know, it's all that, you know, it's just airing our shit out, you know, talking about what we're going through emotionally, you know, the fucking trauma, emotional, physical trauma we've experienced through our, you know, our lives as kids that, you know, and putting these pieces together. And it's like, it's the most beautiful experience. Yeah. You know, and finding that balance because, you know, being a man is not just about being strong and, you know, uh, you know, um, the hunter and not about, you know, how many chicks you can fucking be with or whatever your, you know, your, your bar of masculinity is, you know, it's really about, you know, your being a spiritual anchor. You know, and, you know, holding some of those feminine qualities and being able to voice your feelings and what you're going through and share that shit, share the the struggles that you've been through, because then it's like everyone opens up. You know, we all open up to each other when you hear another man say, you know, I've been through this. You know, I've, uh, you know, to watch another man break down in tears and allow himself to be emotional like it's an incredible thing and i totally agree with you yeah it really is i i define you know the ideal masculine as somebody with backbone and heart and then the yeah. wisdom to know when to use them and yes. and often in our culture right now we have men that are just all backbone and yeah. they're not willing to open up and, and be emotional or or you know be vulnerable um, yeah. or you have the flip side of that which i have experienced a lot of which is it's all heart but there's no structure behind it. There's no strength. Uh, and so the women around them, you know, a lot, I speak to a lot of guys in relationships where their wives, you know, they're the ball busters, they're the taskmasters and, and more power to them that I'm not taking anything away from that. There's a lot of yeah. women that kick ass and yeah. know, run businesses and all that, but they're also miserable. <laughs> they're also, yeah. going, I, I don't feel like a woman, you know, I have a man right. that's constantly placating me. So there's right. that dynamic too. And, and yes. both of them need, the support of the other, the backbone and the heart, and then the intelligence, the wisdom though. Oh, here's where I need to step up. Here's where I need to, to open up and, and be a little more empathetic or compassionate or whatever. I feel that man. Yeah. It's really important. That's where we're going, you know, or at least where we need to go. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a great, uh, I think he calls himself an economic historian. Uh, his name is, I think it's Niall Ferguson. Uh, he's, I think he's, British or I don't know, he's got a funny accent. Sorry. Yeah. Wherever wherever you're from. But he talks about the cycle of of um of uh empires, like the Roman uh, yeah. Empire or whatever, and how they start out with, you know, abundance and then it moves into um uh, apathy and then it moves into um, corruption and then it moves into bondage and then it moves into spiritual awakening. And I feel oh, wow. like as a culture, America is really in that, you know, we're, it feels like we've been in that apathetic and now like starting to like get corrupt, which, yeah. you know, if you follow that cycle, what comes next is bondage. Like, well, let's not do that. Yeah. We need a spiritual yeah. awakening to go. Let's, we don't have to go there. You know, we can do yeah. that, but yeah, I, I totally feel that spiritual void too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you before we before we wrap up two things. Number one, just how are you doing overall f- physically? Are are you are you getting the support? Do you have you know, or 
where are you at as an individual? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing really well. Um, yeah, I've got, uh, I do a lot of work in the cannabis space out here. Business question. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, uh, a couple cannabis businesses. I started a CBD company. Uh, CBD is the non-psychoactive cannabinoid found in the cannabis plant. It's great for everything from inflammation to anxiety, uh, helping with sleep. Um, how does that get taken? Uh, you can take it as a topical. I take tinctures. Um, there's gummies, so it can be eaten. Um, uh, I've also got a cannabis insurance company, which provides insurance to cannabis businesses, everything from product liability to um, you know transportation, dispensary licenses, all that stuff. So uh, is, is the heard- primary objective with with your uh, with that business? for medical purposes or are you just libertarian in it that, Hey, to each their own. And if you want to go get high, that's your thing or whatever. Um, you know, for me, it's very nuanced. I don't really believe, I think that the recreational aspect of cannabis is uh, sort of a marketing thing that people don't, even people who are using it recreationally are actually getting medicinal benefit from it. You know, whether it's stress relief, or, you know, even people who party and smoke weed, it's like, well, I'm sure you drink, you know, a few less, you have a few less drinks of alcohol because of your cannabis use, which is helping your liver and kidneys and your whole digestive system and your mind. Um, and I think that that will switch. I think that cannabis is too powerful of a medicine to be sort of used in a recreational way i think that people it leads people back to themselves in a way that you know many other plant medicines do maybe not as intensely as say psilocybin or ayahuasca might but at the same time you know you it will lead you to a spiritual path to a spiritual awakening um and it's something that I'm very passionate about. You know, I've I've gotten on this. I do a lot of speaking in, in the cannabis versus opiates versus pills realm. Um, and I've seen the amount of lives that the cannabis plant has positively benefited from military veterans to, you know, children with severe seizure disorders uh, to guys like myself, you know, um, pro football players, the, the neuroprotective qualities, our federal government has a patent on cannabinoids as a neuroprotectant and an antioxidant. So that means, yeah, they've actually seen through science, it's patent 6,630,507. You could look it up on the internet. Um, they've found through scientific research that cannabinoids actually help the brain heal following trauma and actually help to protect it from further damage. So not um, just provide relief, but actual healing as well. Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. They flush out the toxic substances, sort of the cascade of hormones that happen. When you experience a concussion or a traumatic brain injury, there's all these chemical reactions that are occurring in your brain, a lot of which are very toxic and they, when they sit in there for a long time. So cannabis actually helps go in there and flush those out, helps the brain cells heal, helps create new brain cells, trigger neurogenesis, and so on. So 
I'm very active in, uh, you know, getting the NFL to change their policy on cannabis. Um, and so, so the business side, that's cool. You know, I'm, I partnered with some great people. Um, my insurance, the cannabis insurance company is called, uh, the green shield. Um, uh, and then the CBD company I work very closely with, uh, is called Ohio energetics. Um, you know, both are just outstanding, you know, groups of people. Um, however, I've started an organization called athletes for care, which is really, you know, the way I envision it is filling the void of where the NFLPA fails, you know, which is providing the emotional and spiritual support that athletes need in their transition out of their sports lives. Uh, starting, it really stemmed out of cannabis advocacy. It was a group of us that all came together and had this similar sort of narrative with cannabis and how it had a positive effect on our uh, athletic careers as well as our lives after it, helping us get out of, um, you know, to reestablish ourselves in our life after sports. If I could just ask you really quickly, the, the mental image that I think probably a lot of people have is a bunch of football players sitting around smoking dope. Is that what it is? Or is it is it no, is it no. more holistic than that? No, it's much more holistic than that. So it starts out of cannabis advocacy and education to, you know, a Hey, this can help get you off of opiates. Uh, this can help you deal with addiction. This can help heal your brain. Um, but, you know, we are very much holistically uh, founded. You know, we believe in food as medicine, exercise to keep your body healthy. You know, cannabis is just one tool. You know, I actually, I, I don't really even use cannabis that often anymore. Um, it, it really, it got me to where I needed to be. And now I, you know, I meditate, I do yoga, I do bulletproof coffee and curcumin and different herbs and, and things like that, um, that help, you know, with my mental clarity, with my, you know, overall well-being. And so we're very founded in education, um, of these practices, meditation, exercise, nutrition, uh, plant medicine as tools for getting yourself to a level where, you know, you can regain control of your life. You can feel empowered in your life again. Um, and, uh, we do offer some entrepreneurial program support, some financial support, investment support. Um, we are putting together the Athletes Afterlife Experience through Athletes for Care, which is basically like you were talking about, getting a bunch of athletes together um, and going and doing a mountain hike camping trip, you know, uh, going out to Mount Bierstadt in Colorado and doing a two-day mountain hike with a camping night in the middle where, you know, we all just get around the bonfire and share the stories, you know, share the struggles that we're dealing with, um, you know, the emotions that you feel, uh, you know, what your life has been like in and out of football or sports, because we're, we're we've got NHL guys, um, NFL, uh, we've got some NBA players, we've got Olympians, um, 
we've got UFC guys. So it's, it's across the board, you know, athletes deal with these types of issues. Um, so athletes for care, uh, which has really brought me back into another community. Like you were talking about, you know, having a community of people is so crucial to our well being. You know, I just read this book tribe by Sebastian younger. I'm sure you've read it or if not, definitely I recommend it. It's, you know, it just brought this whole idea of having a community, you know, into scientific terms of how, how crucial that is for human well-being. Um, and then I've got my podcast, Mindful Warrior Podcast, where we bring on former athletes, we bring on scientists, researchers. Uh, we brought on last week, we had a woman who advocates for cannabis for postpartum depression and mothers um, and helping to deal with that. We've had psychics and shamans. So we're really about, you know, bringing into awareness, especially of athletes, guys like ourselves, these these holistic healing practices, you know, this other way of being thinking outside of the box, you know, because we're not just you know, we've found that, you know, as especially in football, maybe this happens in other sports, but because of the nature of it, you know, you get so entrenched in I'm a football player warrior that it's difficult to see yourself as a human being outside of that. And so our podcast is really about, you know, bringing this out like, hey, man, we're creative thinkers. We are artists and musicians and yogis and fucking you know everything in between we're business minds you know we're entrepreneurs we can do anything and you know the tools that got us to the nfl are also tools that can help us succeed in life um and so you know that's that's what i'm doing man and i'm i'm good you know i'm I'm soaking in this this aspect of, you know, what life is all about, who Eben is outside of being an athlete. Um, you know, I just, you know, I've gone very, very deep down the spiritual path. You know, I found, you know, going back to the, the warrior way of being, I feel like, you know, spirituality, you know, this was always something that, I was very much into in my life before football and now coming out of it, I can really begin to explore this stuff uh, more wholly. Um, and it's, it's profound, you know, the, the, what life has to offer. Um, and you know, the, the amount of self discovery and, you know, learning about, you know, what I like, who I am, what I want to do with my life, uh, is is really it's been an amazing journey and I'm I'm stoked for this my life after football. Um, that's really cool. You you talk about the creative writing too, and just in general the the, the, the creative element. Your grandmother was uh, was a uh, actress, right? Yeah, Academy Award winning actress Estelle Parsons. She won uh, Best Supporting Actress for Bonnie and Clyde. Uh-huh. Uh, she played. Warren Beatty plays Bonnie or plays Clyde 
his brother is Gene Hackman in the film, and my grandmother plays Gene Hackman's wife. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and she won Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, and, you know, that was sort of part of my, my, my lineage, you know, with my dad. He was also – both my parents are great athletes. My dad was a Division One basketball player, turned artist, turned painter. And, um, you know, art and sports, art and athletics have always been – you know, I was very blessed to have sort of these two, the yin and yang of my life, you know, having that masculine and then having that feminine. And with football, it really plunged me into the masculine. And, you know, I found coming out of my football career um, that I was so entrenched in that, that I lost sight of a lot of this feminine ener energy, a lot of these feminine aspects of myself. You know, and so it's been really great to be able to start incorporating those back into my life. And it's just been so important and, um, you know, integral into in my relationships, you know, and, and with my family and friends and the people that I surround myself with now. So, um it's very interesting. How well, would you, last question, how, how do you want to be remembered? Do you have a sense of that yet? Um, I just want to be remembered as a guy who brought a lot of positivity and light into the world, into my, my space of, you know, if I can bring some light and awareness uh, into a dark corner of a place that I've been, you know, I think that that's, that's really what I'm here to do. I love that, yeah. man. It, you know, you look at your life and you look at the the aspiration to be an NFL player and to have that sense of achievement and then to get beyond that, go, you know, and then, then to figure out, well, what's next? And then to have that intention to be, to, to bring light to dark places is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. Evan, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I feel like we could probably chat forever. Yeah. <laughs> we can chat for another hour, man. Yeah, exactly. But uh, thanks again, man. I'll, I'll definitely be checking out your podcast and uh, appreciate what you do. Yeah, thank you, man. I really appreciate the time, Peter. It was awesome. Excellent. Thanks. Bye.